Welcome to SelfDiscoveryMedia.com, where the Orchard of Wisdom shows are at your fingertips. It ignites your soul, your heart, your spirit, your mind, and your body with illumination from people who have made the journey before you. They're here now to help you on your journey, on your path of self-discovery. We are funded by you, the audience, and the people we interview. If you wish to support us, please go to SelfDiscoveryMedia.com and press on our Fund Action button. Anything is appreciated. We would like you to sit back and enjoy the shows. Here we go. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of An Author's Kiss, right here on selfdiscoverymedia.com. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my wonderful repeat guest is Charles Sheldon. He was here last year where we talked about the ancient wisdom and also all the wonderful books that he's written, Strong Heart, Adrift, totem and we went through the books which we're actually going to touch on again today but we're actually going to be talking a little bit more and I please invite you to go back and listen to our previous conversation because this is part two but we're going to be talking about themes in the tales concerning power and truth of the ancient legend as well as the notion that people from long long ago somehow had less wisdom or insight than we do today there seems to be a widely held view that humans before uh, writing were somehow less sophisticated than we really are. I think we definitely do differ on that. We don't think that, do we, Charles? Right? I, I don't think that. I, of course, it, I don't think that. Of course, the irony in all this is that none of us really knows because we don't have direct memory and we only have limited sources. So, so it's, it's sort of what you choose to believe and the evidence that you can muster to support that belief mm. in a way. And, um, you know, before documentation, you know, there used to be documentation in art form, right? Uh, you know, carvings on, on the cave walls and, and right. storytelling passed down around the campfires, et cetera, and the tales that would be passed on. And of course, with every tale told, somebody else will put their own interpretation in it and pass that on. So a lot of the wisdom could either increase or be diluted. But I don't think, I think in, a, in many, many, many ways, uh, people of the ancient times were perhaps a great deal wiser, maybe not as knowledgeable, but wiser than we are today because they trusted their instincts so much and they learned how to read the signs of the universe on earth and they were more in tune where we're more reliant on book knowledge or teachings as we are as into our own entunement. You're, I think you're right. Um, here's an interesting statistic or fact, which is that ancient modern humans say a hundred thousand two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand years ago or even pre-agriculture seemed to be people with larger brains than the brains we have today not much larger but larger and that's an interesting so and and the question then is well why would the brain be getting smaller if it is getting smaller <laughs> And I think there, I think a, one theory might be that as in the old days, before there was writing and ways to store information in a book or in the cloud, I mean, you can look at it either way, 
the only way people could gather information and store it and pass it generation to generation was through the telling of stories, through the, mm -hmm. through the telling of myths. And apparently it was quite common for these people to um, memorize hours and hours and hours yes. of stories about ancestry that went back hundreds of generations. And maybe all that extra brain size was needed to carry all that information in the brain uh, because there was no other place to put it. And nowadays, first we did writing, mm -hmm. which uh, enables storage of some information. Now we have the computer and the cloud and, you know, it makes you kind of wonder if all you have to do is click on your phone to get any answer you want. Yes. Your brain might shrink because you don't need to remember it. It's basically you're not using else. it. You know, like I've just bought a four terabyte hard drive, <laughs> oh, and yeah. I've already got two terabyte hard drives. Of, you know, almost full. Obviously, I right. back up all the shows right. and everything. But right. I think you're right that we're so reliant on storing the information elsewhere, right? Where we're just at a click, we can retrieve it. That maybe we're not right. using that part of the memory brain that used to store all the information. Well, I think the other thing, of course, is that they're different. It used to be in the nineteen hundred, in the nineteenth um, century, in the first of anthropology and you know exploring strange cultures. The idea was that early, that the, the hunter gatherer tribes that were encountered were very primitive and not fully human. I mean, there was a lot of racism and in, in mm -hmm. the beliefs and. And uh, that was the view for, for decades. And lately, the people have started to realize that, no, that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of sophistication in some of these cultures. And now there was a book written not so long ago called The, the Origin of Every... I can't remember the title of the book, but it was a different thesis about ancient humans arguing that there were, you know, people chose to live in very different ways before agriculture and technology and some of those ways were less violent and i actually it's an interesting thesis it got a lot of um favorable coverage i ordered the book and read it and i was very disappointed because it, it seemed to me like 35 million words about really nothing that was really different but kind of hopeful thinking that maybe there was an you know this eden-like idyllic past where everyone was equal and everyone mm. was thoughtful and women were treated well and I'm I'd love to agree with that but I gotta tell you I don't think that's the way it was I think we've been pretty rough all the way but but I think that basic wisdom I don't think I don't think that the idea that people are wiser today makes sense, especially if mm. our brains are smaller. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? And yeah. so it, it's just a, it's, and of course, a lot of this ancient wisdom, as well as languages and everything else have been lost forever, mm. lost, they're gone. And we, we just don't know. And, and uh, so the past is a dim haze to all of us. And much as we try to refine it and have it make a point and argue this idea that we are moving along toward ever more sophistication and ever more development. I think it's no question we're moving toward ever more development. Sophistication, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I Debatable. think people in, 
cultures might look at us and say, wait a minute, you're cutting all your trees down. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, one, one thing, um, so many people today that I've interviewed have become channelers of knowledge, conduits. They, they've said suddenly that just they opened up unwillingly you know well willingly because you have to have the will but just unknowingly and the next thing they they have a book in front of them that they can't remember writing or they don't know what they were writing but it was wisdom from the past and i think you know again going back to that intuitiveness where people understood the land they knew how to look at the weather you know in your book adrift you know you're talking about a, a boat a ship going down and being adrift and you know in on the weather you had to have you had to have some knowledge of the sea and the wind to know how it worked to know what your survival would be because there was no access to a computer or anything else at that right. time to tell you right so right. our instincts are just so utterly profound but i think we're dumbing them down by allowing, I mean, yes, it's wonderful to be able to have, you know, Google, uh, tell us this, tell us that. Yes, it's wonderful to have that kind of access, but not in place of our own intuitiveness of understanding that may be a fact, but how does it relate to me and what does it mean? What can I do with it? Do my instincts agree or what does it trigger in my instincts to do? I feel in many, many ways the more information we have access to, the dumber we are becoming because we're losing the art of being integrative with the wisdom, with the knowledge, what to do with it. You know, I would say the head is like a computer. It's full of data. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have the heart and soul and the spirit's wisdom to know how to use the data, that's all it is. There's a bunch of knowledge that we don't know what to do with. And I think if we've lost that art of that connection, then we have become rather just mindless computers without knowing how to use it wisely. I, I agree with that. I think, of course, when you have a highly intense developed society with cities and utilities and infrastructure and electricity, you know, there's lots of most many, many, many people are very far removed from a lot of the natural cycles that mm -hmm. people evolved with, right? And so um, that may be causing a bit of it, you know, just this sort of, you're isolated from, from it. And then I think the other, other thing that's both the blessing and the curse is you can learn a lot by watching the screen, but you can also have the screen just entertain you without thinking. Mm -hmm. And 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 if you don't, your mind's a muscle too. If you don't exercise yes. the mind, then it's going to get flabby and not work very well. And shrink as well, I think, <laughs> and shrink. Yes. And, and so I'm thinking that I actually think that in ancient times, when there were far fewer people, I mean, my thesis is that before the end of the ice age, and for all those hundreds of thousands of years before that, humans were not the apex predator. Mm -hmm. There were big animals that were the apex predator. Mm -hmm. Humans were oftentimes nearly wiped out and struggled to survive. And those that did survive, you know, had to be um, pretty strong and, and so on. And so I think 
what you might have what you might have had was a situation with far fewer humans. Many of them were killed. Many of them yeah. died. Many of them, I mean, groups, retired groups were wiped out again and again and again. And, and uh, they had to develop a lot of skills that yes. we don't need to use today because we don't have the big animals and stuff. Right. Well, we've become the predators. Well, we've become, yeah, we've become the apex predator and, and the most dangerous. Yes, a species <laughs> of all times. Yes, right. most and certainly. So but I don't think, you know, the idea that there was an ancient society where it was all love and roses, I think is also, I think, you know, life is difficult. You know, there were a lot of people lost in childbirth back mm. then. But if you lived through childbirth, you could live to a very great age. I mean, that, that I don't think it was true that everybody only lived to 40. I think they lived to a great age if they could get through their childhood. It's also also the childhood diseases, you know, like my mom had scarlet fever, um, you know, the things like chickenpox and measles. I know with my own kids not so long ago, Mm -hmm. 30 odd years ago, somebody had measles, you just had them all play together, you know, and now there's inoculation against it. And it's like, you know, have everybody get it to build up the immune system and it's that's done right um make sure you're not around a pregnant woman that was the only stipulation you know you know that brings to mind a thought that i don't see people mentioning which is this that it it may very well be that in the last say 50 years with all these inoculations and with the much more hygienic kind of way Mm -hmm. of living the fact that kids are no longer out there eating dirt and playing in the dirt and right they aren't building up the kind of immunities that they need, which may make people more vulnerable to a lot of things True. that they didn't used to be vulnerable to. I mean, the common cold seems yeah. to be, you know, exponential where, you know, when you look back on history, you know, it wasn't something that, oh, you're inevitably going to get several colds this winter. No, you know, because as you said, they built up that immunity and that dirt kept them warm yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. They were more hearty. Right, more hearty. And, you know, going back to, to, the, to the wisdom, and I think, you know, going back to your book, Adrift, you know, a, a ship going down, being adrift out at the sea, having to know the wind, having to know the weather, having, hoping that somebody had got the message to come and rescue you. And everybody had to step into their survival, you know, of, you know, in, in the book, you have people, some people had their their particular outfits on that could keep them warm against Mm, mm, hyperthermia and others didn't manage to get it so they're switching around trying to keep everybody warm you've got people puking you've got people peeing you've got people doing everything that that you know in the movies i always it it always marvels me in the movies that nobody ever goes to the toilet you know (laughs) these heroes go from one thing to the other and they never seem to need a bathroom you know or to eat you know it's just like they're just super people which is an illusional thing but, you know, I think one of the things is you had the farmer that knew his land. You had the shepherd that knew the sheep and the weather. You had the seaman that knew the waters. You had people that knew their arena. And when they brought that information together, I, then you had an abundance of information of everybody sharing it, right? Whereas today, we expect people to know everything. Uh, which is not, you know, everybody has a gift, everybody has a forte that they're good at, that that's what they're meant to be, that's their contribution. And this thing is that you've got to be a bit of everything, I yeah, think I, is, I, 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 I disagree with, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. 
Can we pause for one minute? I'm yes. Just... So do you think that everybody trying to be the one size fits all is kind of where the problem is, is that we're not actually tapping in to the particular knowingness that we're all intricately have on something and, and then also that inability to share it? I don't know. I mean, um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's a very complicated world we're in today, mm -hmm. you know, it, and, and it's, I mean, you were talking about how people knew their, um, you, you weren't saying this, but what you, in, in a way you could say you, people in the old days, people knew their place in this, in the sense, not only their place, on the land or on the sea, but their place in society, mm -hmm. you know, it was, you know, you were the king or you were a serf. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. it was, you had a was, role to play. You had a role to play and people accepted the role mm -hmm. and, and, and their, you know, sphere of knowledge wasn't very broad. Now it's very, very different. I remember seeing a, a, a show in, I watched a, a, a video of, of, of this person who, chose to live up in Northern Greenland. And, and uh, they, they were interviewing this person and, and there was a devastating statement was made, which was that with this development of social media and Facebook and these little phones, all the kids up in Northern Greenland who previously only knew the life they were born to, mm -hmm. or maybe some visitors from outside now and then, now, every day they can see the way people live everywhere else on earth and they feel that they're missing it. Yeah. They feel they're lacking, yeah. they get depressed and, and, and they, they flee home or they can't handle it and they take their own lives. So in a way, the, 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 one of the issues seems to be that people's expectations are fed by this commercial culture and everything, you know, yeah. and they raise the expectations and of course, you can only do so many things, right? You right. only have so many days. You can only do so many things. But if you want to do something that you just can't get around to doing, you're going to get any angry and frustrated. And, and, and it's, anyway, it's, it's the, all this in my mind, this thing, the thing that's striking me about this is that if, if you read the ancient philosophers who talk about questions like what is truth and what is survival, and we think that, well, we're way beyond that, but we're not way no. beyond that. We're dealing no. with the same questions today. It's just, it's in the, in the ancient times, the truth was what's happening. The sea level keeps rising three feet a year because the ice is melting mm -hmm. and the ice age ended. Now the, the question is, it's sort of the, is the same thing, maybe for different reasons, but, but people, um, We've had, in my opinion, we've had to deal with these cosmic, life-threatening issues right from the beginning of our evolution. Yeah. I mean, there have been long periods where we've lived a settled, nice life, maybe, when the weather's been really good between ice ages. We have long periods of nice weather. But most of the time, the weather is not good. Mm -hmm. And we've had to live with that. And so it's been one upset after another. And I think the terrible illusion that we've become trapped with is this idea that somehow through our technological progress, we've gone beyond mm. the fact that we have these 
kind of biblical crises facing us, but we we kind of do. I mean, you go, can go back in history and yes. find weather catastrophes again and again mm-hmm. and again, maybe not caused by humans driving automobiles, but there's still weather catastrophes and they're still equally damaging. So um, it's a sh- I think it's a shock today for us to, this Omicron thing and this whole virus thing is mm-hmm. a real ego deflator because it's, we can't seem to handle it. And it doesn't matter who you are. It, it, it's a level playing field, right? You know, oh, I'm rich and popular. <laughs> he doesn't care. Omnicom doesn't care. <laughs> you know? Well, um, there was, there was a, um, a little snippet in news the other day about another variant that's appeared somewhere that's, that's gotten even more than Omicron in terms of differences. And I, don't, I didn't read anything more, but, you know, here we are, we're fighting Omicron like yeah. we're fighting Delta. What if another one shows up? Well, what, what seems to be the pattern from the coronavirus? There's been, this is the fifth one. Each one of them becomes more ferocious, but less dangerous. So the Omnicom oh. is, is like a really bad flu. And if you've been vaccinated, it's just the flu. And various people, my family have gone through it this Christmas. Right. They've all had various levels of it from just aches and pains to literally the sore throats and not able to speak and the shivers and and aches and pains, which is like a very bad flu. But the Delta and and the Corona and the one that was in between, which I can't remember the name of, hospitalized people. Omnicom hasn't really hospitalized people and hasn't been kind of the deaths. It's just been a very bad flu for those who've been vaccinated. Those that haven't been vaccinated, they say it's more the Delta that is getting them. So even if there's another one to come up and they say Omnicom in two months will burn itself out, will see itself through. And so if another one comes up, it might be just as ferocious, but a shorter period of time. And everything has its height and everything has its decline. And if we look at the pandemics and if we look at floods, if we look at disasters, it has a peak and then it comes back down to a level and then it's out of the ashes, what do we build? And right. you know, I think that the virus itself has been um, one of an invitation to humanity of, again, it doesn't matter who you are. So you could be the richest person in the world that doesn't make you any more important than the poorest person in the world. If it's going to get you, it's going to get you. Um, and I also think it's reminded us of the people that really on a daily basis keep us alive. You know, our, our truckers with the goods, our farmers, our nurses, our doctors, the, the shop workers, without them where we, we've been, it's not the Fortune 500 CEOs, right? Uh, they just lock themselves up in their little towers. Um, so we've seen who are really the heroes. And I think it's also been a great invitation for us to reflect on our own lives of what really is important. But we're still very slow to learn. I think human beings out of all of the species ever gone before can be the thickest because we're so slow to learn of what really is important. And we have to keep relearning, I think. A lot we of do. Lessons. And I think that the other thing I think, I mean, I, when I was a kid, you know, the people who were the adults had all grown up in a depression mm-hmm. and they remembered the time of scarcity and yes. fear and saving things. And so it was a very much more conservative 
mindset in terms of, you know, keep what you got, take care of what you got. Don't mess, you know, mm-hmm. that's changed now to, you know, it's, it's, it's generations go and we forget that we naturally, and we have all these technological tools to have an abundant, yeah, rich, I don't mean wealthy, but rich in terms of material goods, life so that everybody's got a cell phone, everybody, you know, it's just, it's all this stuff. And yet the, the, the same difficulties about despair of the soul and what's, what is meaning mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what is truth. I mean, we, one thing I think we're learning, which is a little shocking, it's certainly shocking to me. And it makes you wonder what, what history really would say if you could really go back is it does appear that as whole groups of people can collectively go kind of mad with different belief structures, you know, and just decide that, okay, the earth's flat and, (laughs) and they, and they believe it and you can't convince them otherwise. They'll, they'll even die before you convince them otherwise. And that's a little bit terrifying. And it's very scary to see it happening today when we supposedly have all these, all this information. Well, it seems to be that, uh, we have so much science today. Uh, you know, people have dedicated their lives into studying, you know, whatever science it is, medical, physical, union, uh, whatever it is. Yet there seems to be a pushback against the science. And, you know, the more you say this is it, uh, the more other people go, no, it's fake news. I wonder where that started. <laughs> but, you know, it, there's a pushback against the knowledge. Yeah. I mean, there, apparently there was a period in, there was a party in America before the Civil War called the Know Nothing Party. And they were proud in what they didn't know. It was, again, it was an anti-elitist group of folks who decided that, you know, there's another way. And this is not a new thing in this country. I don't know what, what in Canada, but in this country, there's been this sort of celebration of, of, we don't need to know everything, you know, and, and, and so it's a, it's, it, it, these things seem seem to repeat Mm. in my mind in some way. And yeah, we have the situation in this country now where you have lots of people, somehow the whole issue about, a vaccination reduces your chances of getting severely hurt by this thing Mm -hmm. has been politicized to mean that, you know, by proudly saying you won't get vaccinated, even at the risk of your life, that's more important. That identity is more important than, you know, this idea about the collective benefit. I mean, it's, it's, you're right. I mean, I'm just saying a long way, what you're saying that people are losing but I think part of the reason, I think part of the reason that people may lo- are losing some faith in science is there have been a lot of cases of bad science, or oh, yeah. dishonest science, or Mad science. papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean things that are done wrong, and 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 so people are suspicious, and mm-hmm. and there's there's. And where there's suspicion, there could be hysteria. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. And 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 so, you you everyone's hoping 
I think people are hoping that people come to their senses and settle down and just try to do the best they can. But of course, you can make another argument, which is that we get our news from commercially supported platforms and they're, they're in business to make money and they make money by getting eyeballs on their screen, Mm -hmm. buying the stuff they advertise. Right. And even the so-called alternative news, like in the States, there's a bunch of YouTube based channels that are pretty highly regarded but they're all having to hustle for money and support and sponsors now. And so my memory is, and I could be really wrong about this, but my memory is that the local news was a requirement for a company to have use of a federally owned airwave. They had to provide so much local news every day, local and national. And it was a cost center for them. They just, they had to do it. It wasn't, a, it wasn't entertainment. It wasn't, yeah. you know, neutral. It, wasn't a, it, was, it was neutral, neutral. was it? Yes. Yeah. And Walter Cronkite would read the news. Yes. He wouldn't pontificate on what right. you should think about it. He'd read it and you'd make your own mind up, but that changed, you know, and for whatever reason that changed. And so now if you listen to, well, it's, it's if, you know, you're either in one silo or another silo and, and they're different silos too. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, so you just, it, if I were going to be cynical and some days I feel cynical, I'd say that people are very, very bad at taking preventive action to prevent problems that are falling mm. out in the future. It's I agree. very, very hard to give up something you have for something that might or might not happen. And so people yeah. tend to tend to let it, then, then and when it happens, then you don't have a choice, right? You just have to do it. But so that I think one of the greatest challenges in the, the, the arguments people make about global warming or climate change is the, the, try to frighten everybody into taking dramatic life-changing action based on fear of what will happen. Right. And that, but, but what, what's not understood is that yes. many people who are looking at the science yes. don't agree with the science and you can say, well, they're wrong and they shouldn't be, you know, but, but if they don't, if people don't believe what you're saying, you're not going to get them to go there. Right. There's, so, there's two shows I recommend. One is The Newsroom. It's on Netflix. It was done 2010. And it was exactly what you were talking about. Um, what's his name? I've gone blank to the guy's name. Jeffrey something. Um, brilliant. Three seasons. And it was that kind of transition from telling the news of what it was and then being told what the news should be and the fight against it brilliantly written. Absolutely. And the other one is a show that's on right now, which is don't look up. Oh, I I watched that. Right. So a little parody, you know, (laughs) when it's too late, the asteroids about to hit, they lied, you know, and it's like, how many times do you have to be told? (laughs) You know, and it, it, it is, a reflection of where we are right now, I think. And it's like, why don't we look at um, all of these things as that potential asteroid is coming towards us? I, I still 
have that saying in my mind, which I use a great deal, the stitch in time saves nine. You know, prevention is better than cure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I just don't understand why this kind of, it was common sense. Maybe I'm too old. I don't know. I'm in my 60s. But it was common sense that you did as much prevention or boosting of the immune system or eating right and sleeping right or, you know, knowing that there was a bad winter coming, preparing for it rather than moaning about it when it comes and you didn't have any preparation. And this is, I think, where we're at today. Nobody's, there's, there's too much saturation of news or knowledge, be it true or not. And people don't know what is true and not. And this is one thing I do like uh, about podcasts. Yes, you've got the sensational podcasts that just want to stir things up. But you've got, um, and there are some podcasts that are in it for the money because they're getting back. Mm -hmm. I'm going into my 10th year. I've still got to earn anything from it. I could barely keep the station going, so it's certainly not for the it's money. For you. I would like to see the money grow a little bit just to keep the yeah. sustainability a bit stronger. But for me, it's about sharing the wisdom from the people right. Right. who are living it, going through it, their opinion, because it's your truth that can resonate with somebody else or could right. be an illumination for someone else or even planting a seed of thought. I hadn't thought about it that way. I hadn't seen it that way. Right. You know, it's become something I was looking for and I didn't know I was looking for it. And I feel that podcasting now online using the digital has become a way of us communicating with each other through various types of storytelling, which is what we're doing in the conversation. I think you're right. I think that, but I think what it also does, and this is, I think, also true is that you can build a very big audience with your particular form of podcast, but that then becomes one silo of that interest. And then there's someone else can build a very big audience yeah. that's completely contrary to that. So I think and it, it does go too much, very much of who's sponsoring that podcast. Right. But it also, right. can, it also can be ideological. Yes. I mean, are, and we know that sensationalism sells because there's a lot of people that want to buy it. Well, for example, there is, um, you know, you can go if you're, it keeps changing, but, but there's a, there's a lot of um, podcasts on the web that are very left leaning. And then mm -hmm. there are podcasts on the web that are right leaning and, and um, it's, it's different, you know, they have each group has their own tribe. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so it's it's tricky. I think I watch sometimes I'll watch the I like to watch the Canadian national mm -hmm. news, whatever it is, it comes on and, and you do national news and I got fascinated watching the the um the uh, there was a whole bunch of stories about one of your ministers who was part Native American who got mm -hmm. in a big fight with with you know the prime minister and it was just a big but it, but that's like the news was in the u.s maybe 50 years ago in some mm -hmm. ways i mean i think it's it's good but you're having some of the same struggles up there that we're yeah. oh god yes we're neighbors we have a local news station here in victoria which i i like watching because there's a lot of kind of barter between mm. you know mm. the weatherman and the other guy and they laugh a lot at things and they lighten it up and when it's serious to tell a story they're in that serious mode but it's you feel that you're getting the information but you don't feel you're being weighed down by it right right but i do think that here's another thought and and i tried 
of course, when I was writing my books, you, you want to, when you write a book or a story, you want the story to run the book, you know, yeah. it's all about the story. If along the way, the story can trigger some speculations or thoughts, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. great. Yes. Um, and I just finished a wonderful book by a, a guy, his name I think is Alfred Knorr, K-N-O-E-R, called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And it's one of the most wonderful books I've ever read and beautifully written story that jumps through time and different characters but it's it it's it's really about ancient truth and the and and people striving to find a different place and then finding out that maybe where they were was the best place to be to begin with you know right. kind of idea about you're always searching for more but you don't even see what's in your backyard and i think today one of the one of the challenges people have is there's so many people out there who are just struggling to hang on, you know, just desperately struggling. All those noble workers you talk about who mm -hmm. were keeping us going in the pandemic, they don't have a choice. Well, no. maybe some of them may, but a lot of them, if they don't put their hours in, they don't get paid, you know. And, exactly. And there's an and, awful lot of people, hand, you know, hand to, hand to mouth, it's lived from paycheck yeah, yeah, yeah. to paycheck, yeah. Yeah, so that's a... That's a uh, I have a book that I think you would enjoy, a gentleman I just interviewed um, at the end of uh, last year, uh, Jared Knott, and it is, um, um, well, hang on a second, let me get to look at the book, make sure I get the title right. It's Tiny Blunders and Big Disasters. And it's quite fascinating because in it he talks about, and he did 11 years of studying this, and yeah. and he, um, he it, little things like, um, one particular war thing, they're not going to shoot yet. They're still they're talking to each other. And one soldier hits his helmet off the wall and somebody thinks it's a gun going off. And the next thing you know, burst out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Nixon Watergate. Um, it all came about the, how they discovered what was going on was pieces of sticky tape. And it's little things like this, tiny blunders that ended up being the huge, big disasters. And it's fascinating. But in, we talked before about my brother, Sam Hawksmore, and he wrote about the repercussions of Thomas D of a young boy going through a kind of a wormhole. He's a teenager talking on the phone to his girlfriend, ends up in World War II. Wow. And with his phone and everything else, gives the information to the wrong person who's a spy for the Nazis. And hence, going forward, Germany won. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's just like the what if factor. What if that hand happened? What if this had happened? And I think it not only is fascinating, but I also think it gives us food for thought of perhaps to think about things before we react to things, because we never know, you know, if, if we're going to change the entire future by reacting too fast. I agree. I agree. And, and but if you if you have a a system of information that depends on crisis to mm. get eyeballs to look at it. And then you said the sense of urgency and then you try, you know, it's like ready, shoot, aim, you know, yes, the, yes. The, the Trigger of, happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you try to be deliberative and careful. I still think, I still think that most people um, are just trying to, do the best they can yeah I, I and i think most people this is maybe naive but i think most people are trying to do the best they can and they you know obey the rules as best they can and they do the best they can 
and and uh, they don't get too excited. They don't. They tend not to be visible so much in social media or even on podcasts, and they don't. You know, they're not written about in the news. And, yeah. You know, it's it's it's, it's only they're the, the undercurrent only... people. They're actually yeah. keeping the current going, but nobody sees them. Right? But they can be aroused too. Yes. And oh yes. Very frustrated or very angry, and and uh, it sort of feels now like nobody's really speaking to them. I mean, mm. I think I think that on behalf of them. Yeah, I think what's happened in the last few years has been there's a group of people who are very angry about their lot for whatever reason and they feel that they've been screwed and you know in this country it's jobs went away and a bunch yeah. of other things and, and there's been a big movement to authoritarian um governments around the world in response to that group of people but i still think there's even bigger group of people who haven't been aroused yet you know who who, who don't really want to go where some of these angry people are, but they don't know what to do. Right. You know? And, and there isn't to date, I don't see anyone speaking so much to them, you mm. know, in, in a way. But not in a way that there has been the wrong approach of let's stir them up into anger and injustice. Right. But how about speaking to them what do you need and how can we make it better for you? There hasn't been, let's listen to find a solution. Instead, it was, let's stir them up and start a different type of revolution that wasn't productive. I don't, you know, what, what, what troubles me is, I wish, I wish you were right. <laughs> I'm, not <laughs> sure, I'm not sure you are. I think the power of anger and rage and that kind of high emotion is pretty effective and and reasonable consideration and thoughtfulness you know, if it's is, led properly well I, even there, you know that you know that the thing about you know there's a lot of people that they have every right to be angry they have been completely right. overlooked they have been taken for granted they have been trodden on um and I think, yes, listen to their anger, tap into that anger, use that energy to, to address what they need to make it happen. But instead, it ended up becoming not a revolution, but riotous. And if you're in a riot, you're not going, nobody's going to benefit from that. All you're going to get from that is destruction, more frustration and more anger. So I can't see how that works. Use the anger to generate energy to find a solution what other options do we have? Not to the point where you're stirring them up to the pitchforks. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not saying that riots work, but they get the attention. I mean, even like in this country, for example, there was this big, a year almost a year ago to the day, there mm -hmm. was that big attack, in, that, yeah. that attack on the Capitol. And, and in, this is my view. This isn't anybody's view. I'm going to say that 80% of the people who went down to the Capitol were just there and they were just going along with the flow because everybody went in that direction. And I'd say there were 20% who had much more nefarious goals right. than mine. They were organized. They planned it in advance, whatever. Okay. The shoot stairs, as I called them. So, 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 so look what's happened though. A year since. Yeah. I mean, everyone was horrified when that happened. 
But then what happened now, it's the, the narr- it all depends on the narrative. So mm-hmm. they're trying to try another narrative. Well, it was just a bunch of hotheads. Well, it wasn't as bad as you think. Those were a bunch of patriots, you know, and it, it minimized, minimizing and missing. And it's, it's, it's being done fairly successfully, I think, by some people. Mm-hmm. So, so in a way, I mean, I agree with you. If you could find someone to be thoughtful and think things through, but then, you know, if, <laughs> Sorry, because, there's, there's a point that, that I watched last night, actually, on Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, and it's like uh, Congress has just passed a bill uh, where 13 Republicans, you know, passed it with it of to put stack a lot of money into infrastructure on all of the cities around America to rebuild right, bridges right. and roads and everything else. And they've been getting death threats. Mm-hmm. And there was one guy that did a verbal dialogue, which I can't repeat here, but in a MF yeah. and kill you and all of that yeah, was yeah. going all the way through it, you traitor, but his own city is going to benefit from it. And this is the, the rational thinking. Maybe I'm just off from a different planet, but I can't understand that ignorant anger because your own city is benefiting. Please explain. I don't get it. Well, for, first of all, <laughs> I'll explain it as best I understand it. First of all, you're in Canada, and 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 Canada is. I, 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 if I could, if Randa and I could re- move to Canada, retire, we would. I think you know, but we can't because it's hard to it's hard to hard to move there. You know, you got to have a job and a whole bunch of other things. It's a different experience. And I was reading a very interesting, a very interesting. My latest passion has been studying the system in Canada of the voyageurs and the Cour de Bois and the fur trade in the 16th and 17th and 18th and 19th century. And it was very interesting overall in the whole Canadian experiences. And you have your own issues with your first peoples and everything, Mm -hmm. but in, in the U S in the lower in the U S there was war with the, the Indians with the native tribes right from the start, because the people were coming to America to take land and farm. Right. Okay. In Canada, which has only a small amount of really good farmland down in the south, mm-hmm. really, most of it's this huge boreal forest. Canada was developed by this international fur trading mm-hmm. thing, which required partnership with the Indians because they were the ones who showed them the roots and used the canoes and stuff. So that although there's contention between the first peoples and the Europeans in Canada, the degree, it's, I would argue, is not anything like it was in this country. Until recently, until recently, well, yeah, yeah. with all the the dead bodies of the children oh, yeah. oh, being yeah. sent, you know, and then that is raised, you know, and, but what has stepped up is apology yeah. and kind of compensation for whatever yeah. you can yeah. do. There has been that ownership of it, right? So this is a long way of, I guess, of saying that so here you have people who are in their silo of belief. Now, do, there were people, there are people who went to Washington on January 6th who firmly believe that the Constitution is being threatened because the election was robbed, the election was stolen, and they are no different than the Minutemen in Concord trying to defend the country against a tyrant. They really believed that in their mm-hmm. bones, and they were astonished and horrified 
to find that, wait a minute, you mean you guys, you police aren't supporting us and what we're doing? So it was the, the belief was very, very strong. They were, you could argue they were wrong, but they believed it. Right. And, and, and we were at this point, it seems, where the, 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 your, your level of belief is what makes something true or not. Mm. And, and on, the, on one side, you've got this belief about the election being stolen and all this stuff. And on the other side, you've got a whole another set of beliefs about how the entire country is, is racist and you know we have to do all this stuff and wokeness is what that, that's mm-hmm. called. And, and they're almost like two sides of the same coin. And, and yeah. I, think what, I think what people have lost sight of is that there's probably been in this country, in America, I don't know about Canada, but in America, ever since the beginning in this country, there's been, you know, 10 to 20% of the people just don't fit in. Mm-hmm. They're angry, they're radical. It's mm-hmm. like one in 10, one in five. And they've been kind of, they've been kept reasonably controlled by the other 80 to 90%. But every now and then they get power. Right. And they're getting some power now. And so you think from Canada, you read this stuff and you think everybody thinks this way. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's true. But they're getting the airtime. And that's, right. the, that's where the anger, anger equals airtime equals eyeballs. Equals right. Fails. But then my point going back to before, they're angry. Uh, instead of uh, the killing and the, the mouthing off and the, all the other stuff that they're doing, taking up arms and everything else, uh, where is the sit down and let's say, let me hear you. Where is the concern? What can we do for you? How can we defuse the situation and serve you? I'm not hearing that. If it is going on, it's certainly not making any of the media. All we are seeing are the rebels, right? right. And, and it, it's right. almost become the rebel without a cause because all we're just seeing is the anger all the time. But who is sitting down with them and saying, okay, what can we do about it? And that's, well, I think, that's yeah. I think, the missing link. Otherwise, they're just going to keep getting angry and angry and angry and angry until there's a complete combustion. You know, it's well, somewhere along the line. Right. You've got to address the problem. Right. Well, there, there is there is people look at the country. This is the U.S. now. And they look at what happened in the Civil War and how that war never really ended in some ways. And yeah. the, the very strange that... Um, the war was very, won, but the battle wasn't. Well, yeah, yeah, and the yeah. very strains. Most many people think, well, that was 150 years ago, and mm-hmm. so, you know, but it's not. It's still alive. It's yes. a cultural thing, and so <clears throat> I don't know the answer. The the even in the depression when Franklin Roosevelt was the president, he he was able to do a lot of stuff because he had a vast majority of Congress and the House to pass mm-hmm. his legislation. But he was accused of being a socialist and, a, you know, all this stuff. And, and uh, he, he made a lot of changes because he could, because it was the Depression and then the war, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, but, but that was a crisis everybody understood. Right. Now you have a situation where, on the one hand, you have Biden saying the economy is doing better than it's done in years. On the other hand, you've got all this press saying that, COVID's bankrupting the economy. Right, exactly. You don't know who to believe. Yeah, and aren't... probably both are true. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So I don't, 
It's just who is benefiting. <laughs> well, it, of course, my, my pure little selfish interest is that people need escape, so maybe they'll read my books. Right, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about your books and lighten up the subject a bit. <laughs> I, as I said, I've been, I've been uh, reading, and I'm sorry that I didn't get to read it all the way through, but I have been reading Adrift. And you were um, at sea for a long time. So uh, did this actually happen to you, or are you writing from somebody else that's happening to you? Or? Uh, no, well, no, I, I've been, it's, yes, I've spent time at sea. Um, I don't know, I, I fished commercially for a few years, and then I went back when I was 65, and I went back for four more years as a merchant sailor on big commercial and military ships. And I've never been on a ship that caught fire, which is what happens in a drift. Mm -hmm. I've never had to abandon ship into a lifeboat, although I've been in lifeboats and done lifeboat drills, mm -hmm. right? Um, I've been in some pretty bad weather. You know, I've had my experience in, in pretty bad weather. So the, the, the book Adrift is as true as I could make it based on what I know from my sea experience, but it's not based on anything real that happened. And in fact, I don't know if you got far enough into the book, but at one uh, uh, these people who run this old beat up salvage tug go right. racing up to try to grab the ship. And when the ship's drifting and there, there's no power on the ship, how do you, A, how do you get aboard the ship? And then how do you attach a line to the ship to tow it? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to do it. And so what I did was I was, I was on LinkedIn. I have all these guys in the, in the maritime industry, tugboat captains and stuff. Mm -hmm whom I stay in touch with on LinkedIn. So I wrote, I just did a broadcast message that's saying, look, if a ship's dead in the water and it doesn't have any winches or power, how do you hook a tow up on a tugboat? And these guys all wrote back and told me how to do it. So that's what's in the story. I mean, You're right, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so it is somebody else's experience that, that yeah. you've attached to the story, right? Yeah, and you can't, I mean, if you can't, I've had a lot of good, a lot, a lot of people have read Adrift and really enjoyed it and really felt that they were there when Oh, no, they were I, I'm definitely it. into it. I just haven't had time to finish it, but no. most certainly, you know, getting a little seasick with them in the boat right now. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the whole point is, at least I would argue in fiction, the whole point is to draw the reader such that the reader is there in mm -hmm. the story seeing it happen as it's happening and that's that's hard to do but it's much easier to do i think if if i've had the ex exper enough experience around something mm -hmm. then i can picture it and then i'm just writing what i see but it's also about character building now, you know, my brother is an author as well. And, you know, when he's doing something that happens to include, his, you know, historical things, he will go to that place and study as much as mm -hmm. he can. Mm -hmm. And he will incorporate that historical event into his book. But mm -hmm. it is about the characters going through the historical event, mm -hmm. right? So what you've done is that you've taken characters and their various reactions to what's going on, uh, using something that could or could not have happened. Um, 
which has probably most certainly happened. You know, ships do catch fire, whether mm -hmm. you've been on one or not. And it's really about, I mean, this is why I'm drawn to things like The Walking Dead. It's not about the zombies. It's about how do people react in this time period, you know, because they there is no more security. There is no more comfort. There is no who doesn't matter what you who you are, or your title. Everybody's in it together. And what are they going to do to survive? So it's it's exciting and it's intriguing as to what it brings out in people, because we always want to identify with someone, you know, what would I do if I was in that situation? Mm -hmm. Could I do that? Oh, that was pretty clever. You know, and I think that's where we immerse ourselves into the story. And I am immersed into it. I just haven't had time to finish it. So I love the way, you know, where it's going and who's the strength and who isn't. And, you know, and that you've got to know about characters, you know, people to make a story. It doesn't matter whether what's factual or not factual. It's do you buy the characters? And mm. so where do you get your characters from? Is this just from a lifelong of watching people? That's a really good question. I, originally, the first couple of novels that I wrote, it was a struggle to create the characters. I mean, I, I would have a character and for, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't sit down and plot a character's life or write all this stuff about it or any of that stuff. I just write it, which is lazy maybe, but I would do it that way. And originally, the first few books I wrote, the book really didn't become real to me until enough characters were at least there were at least two characters were kind of walking on their own. And then the story started mm -hmm. to happen. But in this series, what's happened is very, very different because I did so many years of research mm -hmm. and I hadn't been writing for a long time. The characters almost without exception just appeared Yeah, and they were fully formed and they appeared. And I don't know how that happened. And I mean, one thing though, Sarah, which is really important is if you know the structure of that story, it's it's got a it's got a different kind of structure in that the the linear timeline of the ship burning and going adrift and being taken, and it's told from several points of view from different mm -hmm. characters located in different places, like different little plot lines, and each chapter is from a different point of view. But the you, the reader, know that I'm not going to go back into a backstory or flip mm. back to the you know it's it's linear linear. So each character is part of a bigger story, but it was important. I recognized this way, way a long time ago that each character needs to have their own arc of challenge and development, or you, the reader, won't be interested in right him or her. So, for example. One character is this ex-reporter named Travis who goes on a tug and he's, he's, his mother's ill and he's, and he's worried about his mother and he's trying to earn money to help carry for his support. And he was working in a newspaper and didn't like it. And he goes on this tug, but, but his, his issue is what do I do about my mother who's getting mm. dementia? Mm. And then the captain, Steve, you know, he's the captain of the ship. But his issue is he has a disabled son and he has to sail to pay for the yeah. home care of the disabled son. And so his fear is, what do I do when, if I can't afford to keep my son? And so each, well, it's all one story. Yeah. Each character who's telling the story, I can't, just, I can't just have a character to move the story along or right. you, the reader, will lose interest. 
Mm-hmm. But hopefully you're engaged enough so that each time it comes to a new character, you think, oh yeah, that's right. You know, there's Pete who's, you know, the guard down at the shack, you know, what's going on with him? And, and th- if, if it doesn't work, I don't, I lose you. But if it works, then essentially you fall into a story where there's not just a lead character, but there are yeah. a whole community of people a who are in the story. Mm. And, and it seems to work and, and it's fun to do it that way. And the readers seem to like it. Yeah, but I mean, because you've got the couple that, you know, she wants to leave her husband. You know, right, mean, she's done with him. She's done with him, but, you know, like they're going to go out, you know, with that tug and get that ship because there's money to be made in yeah. that and they're going to sink or swim, you know, otherwise, you know, it's like put up with him one more time, right? And it's yeah. a, and then you've, you've got the people actually on, the, you know, the ship that have had to uh, jump and get, and they don't know if the other lifeboat is, you know, um, if they've got them or not. And it's, you know, you're leaving people on the edge, but at the same time, you're, you're investing in the characters and you become worried about them. Are they going to make right. it? You know, is, is this going to change their life? What about this? What about that? And some people read for escapism. Some people read for connection. You know, some people read to be transported. In, and and I, like, I like a book that leaves me kind of questioning. You know, A, what would I do? Or do I know someone like that? Mm-hmm. Or I wonder what the, my, my, when my brother writes a sequel, I love it because mm-hmm. I know the, I'm already invested in the character. Mm-hmm. And what's the character going to do now? Who's going to come into their life and turn it upside down now? And I, as a reader, love that because you don't want a one dimensional. You want all right. these different because it is the chorus. Right. It is the entire orchestra. Otherwise, it's just one violin all the time and it can be rather droll. So tell us about Totem, because that's your latest book. Well, Totem is the third and final book in this series of books. They're really standalone stories, but they do make sense to read them in order. You don't have to. Many people don't. You can read a draft and then go back and read Strongheart. Um, If you're into adrift at all, you know that Williams and his crew have ended up stuck on this place, right? And they're stuck in this place and they get William to tell them a story to pass the time. Well, the story William tells is the first book, Strongheart. I mean, you right. figure that out. And and so you can go back and read that. And then Totem is the following spring and summer back in the park where a lot of the same characters go back into the park and the mining company is trying to go in there and start doing their work. And these strange animals appear, these mysterious elk kills that they don't know quite what's going on. I've got this embittered wildlife biologist who's lost his career over someone accusing him of falsifying data. He's trying to figure this out and he's damned if he's going to say anything until he really knows. Right. You know, and he's got this ornery niece who, who gets beaten up by her boyfriend who comes and lives with him and he takes her along because he can't do anything else with her. And she's got a different idea. And, and so, the, you know, just, again, it's a bunch of different characters who all for different reasons end up in the, in the, in this place called bear Valley in the park at the same time. And there's a great kind of conflagration of events. And then the rest of the book goes on from there in terms of this commitment that's made about, finding this place somewhere else in the park that might give an answer to everything. 
Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. It's, it's again, it's a, a journey. A story, it's a journey mm-hmm. and it's a story with some of the same characters and what you don't have in a drift, what you do have in Strongheart, and then you really have in Totem is in, in the other books, there's also stories of a dream or a vision or an actual transfer in time that a character makes and talks about. And you, the reader, decide whether mm. it's a dream or a memory or really they really went there. And you can read it either way, you know. And so, again, it's just stories layered on stories. And, of course, the ultimate question for Sarah, the, who's really the main character in all this, although she's not very much in a drift, is, you know, you know, where is her home and, and mm. what is the meaning of all this? And, and, and uh, how did we get here? And so that's, that's what it is. The totem is as long as two of the other books. I mean, it's a long book, um, pretty complicated book, but people really seem to like it. And that's the point. Right. <laughs> I mean, the dedication and the discipline to sitting down and writing a book. As you said, there are some people who have already got the story in their head, they've got the format, they know which each chapter is going to be. And there are some people who have got several characters and they don't know how they're going to play together until they start writing. And the characters take over, hmm. you know, and they write themselves, so hmm. to speak. Are you that kind of writer? More of that. I, mm. I had a general idea when I started this series. It wasn't going to be a series. It was just mm-hmm. going to be one book. And I had a general idea that I wanted to do something about the Olympic Peninsula and the Pacific Northwest. I wanted to do something about this ancient legend that Native Americans have that people have always been here in North America. And I wanted to do something about coming of age and an ornery young kid finding their power in an impossible way. And I ended up choosing a young girl rather than a young boy for a lot of reasons and that was the beginning of it i did three years of research before i started writing anything but i didn't outline anything or mm. you know i just had notes on right geology, just to keep keep Carl Jung, keep I mean, you channeled all, right yeah all that stuff mm. and so then i just started and i and i when i wrote the first book the first draft of the first book sarah there was the frame of that book was different. It was, it was the frame that Joseph Conrad used in Heart of Darkness, which was a bunch of men go out and go to a pilot boat and they wait for the tide to turn so they can go out to meet the ship. And while they're waiting for the tide to turn, this guy tells the story about Kurtz and the Heart of Darkness. So my frame was William's lifeboat crashes ashore on Haida Gwaii and they're going crazy and, and, the mate says, tell us a story, William. And mm. William tells the story that's the story of Strongheart the previous summer. Right. But then what I did, because that was a long book, I stripped away the frame and just told the story of Strongheart. Right. right. But then I had all these chapters with William and the lifeboat. Right. Said, well, what about the ship? And so that, <laughs> became, that became a drift. And right. then the third book, which at one point I didn't know I was going to write one more book or five more books, right? And mm. I thought, you know, don't get trapped. And so I ended up, I wrote one book called Found, which was about going back in the park. And then I wrote another book to complete it. And then I put them together and made them one big book. And in all these cases, um, 
and I wrote, I had the first draft of all these books written by 2015, but it took me until 2017 till now to get them out because mm. each book took three years of revising and stripping yeah. away and rewriting and adjusting um, to the point where I was comfortable with, with it. And it's the best I can do. And so that's, that's, but to answer your question, no, I don't do outlines. It's like writing mm. the book twice. I, yes. I have, I, yeah, it's, it's initially a complete exercise in faith as you start doing this. Mm. You don't know if it's going to work, but you, you know, in, unless you get off your own shoulder, right. Not monitoring yourself. You can't do it. And yeah. I want to do another series, but it's, I have to tell you, honestly, the, promotion side of this is yes so exhausting and difficult and frustrating and humiliating and expensive yeah that i'm it's hard to keep your heart for that part of it right. i know my, my brother's a professional author and believe me any of that other side of it yeah. is dreadful on yes uh, which is a shame because you know the books are so exciting and it's like when people read them they really love them yeah. but it, how do you get them out there because a regular publisher used to go and do book signings and this and that and now even a publisher would say well you're on your own go and do your own advertising and so well, it's totally if, changed now you know well unless you, if you're really established and i know some authors who are you know and they have a good active publisher they're they're good because mm. they've got a base of a few thousand people who buy their book right but that's a function of persistence and luck. That's yeah. A big part of it. But there are, the problem today is, <clears throat> is just being noticed. Yes. How do you, it was 70,000 books a year being produced. Right. How do you even be noticed? Right. You know, and so um, luck plays a huge role in this, just chance and luck. In the end, um, you do what you can and then you have to look after and, and i'm afraid to say it social media podcasts yeah. and social media is yeah. that you have to put it out there and you know yeah. so you know this is one of the reasons i have the author's kiss uh, channel yeah, here yeah. is to put yeah. it out there for authors because i think you know books are, uh, oh you know i like tv shows and movies and think but there's something about a book because mm -hmm. you pick a character in there that you know that feels like you you know, and you become that character, and it's um, and it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful journey to take, and and you really kind of feel an attachment to it, which you don't always feel in a TV show or a movie unless it's right. extremely well done, right. but in a book you do. You know, you've, right. you're far more immersed in it, and you know, I hope that, and and th you know, for a while they were saying, oh, books aren't going to be read anymore, and then then it was like a rebellion against it, and of course, Harry Potter changed reading for kids considerably right. and you know people are realizing that there is a there's a wonderful sense of tranquility and peace in diving into a good book oh yeah all right oh, and yeah. you know that it that it's although you're reading the script of the book it, it's your interpretation of it it's your participation of it of what you're going to get out of it which i think is really exciting well i think again i the base overall the thesis in what I did in my series was that it's just telling of stories that made mm. us modern humans. And so I tried to tell some stories just the way we used to do it, you know, right. I mean, literally around a campfire in some cases. And, and that's how we imported knowledge and imported yes. culture. Yes. And it still is. Yes. It still is. And I mean, today we can talk about the narrative 
you know, who, whoever comes up with the ruling narrative wins. Well, that's mm. just the most powerful story. Yeah, it is. Know? And so yeah. it's, 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 that hasn't changed. No, you know? no. And, 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 and so it's a long, long tradition. It goes back forever. And I think we're all of us storytellers. It's just some of us want to have others read more than others. It's, you know, it's as simple as that. I, I think, you know, from my, my brother is a writer and, you know, he, he transpones into a different person in a different world when he writes completely. Um, I've had people nagging at me for a long time for my book. And it's like, it's the hardest thing to write because people want me to write about myself. And it's like, I just don't know how to do this because, and so, you know, I've, I've brushed it around and, um, and I kind of came up with the thing of it's my angel's perspective of being my guardian. <laughs> and I think it might be a way of me being able to share it from the angel's point of view of, oh, mm. boy, she's done it again, <laughs> you know, where I can lighten up over the stories or I could share the stories from her view rather than my view and right. um, because it, there's it's something about writing about your own life you know I'm very open and honest about things that have happened to me in my life but you know I'm one of these people it's been and done I move on but people want to know my story and it's like I, I suppose I've procrastinated because I you know I was born this happened it's not the kind of the way I want to do it so I think it might be the angel's perspective that's going to come up because it might make it a bit easier yeah it's true so it's I think true. you know writing fiction which I call faction you know when when you can read a fiction and it feels more like fact than fiction that this really could happen or you really feel it's happening then you know that somewhere along the line, however far out it might be, it must have happened, right? Well, there's. I guess you could argue that that uh, if you can, I mean, Carl Jung would probably argue that if 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 you can write fiction that in some ways connects with different archetypes that mm -hmm. you're born with, that will that will resonate with you and draw you in, mm -hmm. and you could say it are ancient truths or um ancient tr emotional truths you know people look for emotional mm -hmm. truth but but um you know when i talk about ancient wisdom to me i don't think there's anything new there's any new wisdom from like a hundred thousand years ago there's lots of new tools perspectives of it perspectives but mm. you know it's still it's still about you know are you true to yourself can yes. you face yourself at the end those sorts of things yes. and so um those don't change. And I think the conceit we fall into is that, well, we're different now. Things are different now. We've changed things. You know, it's a different world. And that's when you get in trouble. <laughs> you know, we can't fight against advancement. I have a nine-month-old no. grandson. My daughter keeps him away from, you know, um, TV and this and that. But he FaceTimes me. And he knows yeah. who I am the moment he yeah. sees my face, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I do think later on, there's going to be the old chip in the head. I think it's there, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we can't fight against technology. What we've got to do is work with it, but right. don't lose our core selves, our right. core beingness. And I think that's the challenge where we're at right now. I have a show coming up in the next few weeks on millennials and, you know, have we dumbed them down by the apparatus 
where all they can do is talk to themselves through TikTok and text and this and that, and they don't know how to communicate anymore. And we, we have a, a certain, you know, thing of, of youth that really do not know how to do their own investigation or tap into themselves or, or understand what that inner wisdom is because they've abbreviated, everything is an abbreviation and a 10 second stimulation yeah. Yeah. that they don't know how to go deep or how to ask the questions or how to investigate. And that's where the dangers are. We can't switch technology off. And this is something that always fascinates me. Every movie or TV show you see about Armageddon and the world coming to an end, all technology goes completely. Yet for some reason, we can't start it up again. We can't power up the, the electricity again. We can't seem to run the water again. It's like we've become completely neothundicals and unable to do anything. And that just seems unrealistic to me because I think if everything goes down, we'll find a way to put it back up. Well, I think I, I would agree with you. Well, in certain places, many, many places. But, yeah, maybe not the entire world, but certainly, but yeah. Big integrated complex systems may break apart for a while yeah but you know i i you know they buckminster fuller i remember i think he used to talk about years and years ago about appropriate technology you know why, why use a nuclear power plant to boil water you know mm -hmm. you can you can find you can use appropriate technology but yes but um you know i look at all this and it's just a very complicated world we live in i do think that we've built these complicated interdependent mm -hmm. complex systems that don't have a lot of reserve in them mm -hmm. and we're now being shocked as things don't seem to work very well right and, and once you break humpty dumpty it's hard to put them back right. and it you're going be, to see the cracks <laughs> and it may be that you know the the, the the archaeological record shows that almost every civilization lasted about 250 years and then it mm. went down right eight or nine generations and maybe that's going to happen again right <laughs> and you know when you look at our generation um we've had the privilege of growing up playing in the dirt playing outside yeah, yeah. you yeah. know like tv was black and white and only on for a few hours and you listen to the radio and dial up phone and all of that and we've gone through this massive technology surge to where it is today and we can see the benefits we can't be doing this right now without yeah. technology yeah. but we also remember the beautiful connection and the simplicity of just being out amongst nature and, you know, in the forest or in the water or just playing in the dirt. I used to make mud pie dinners, you know. <laughs> We've forgotten how to do that. You know, it may be, though, Sarah, that children today will have a similar memory when they're our age. Yeah. It's just a different memory. Right. And it might just be that, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I look at the way my son's raising his two kids, my grandkids who are six and three and you know, they try to limit the, you know, they, they know mm -hmm. TV and shows, but, you know, they're outdoors all the time. And yeah. Pretty basic. And I don't know. I just. I, I think it's we have to incorporate both sides. You know, my little nine month old grandson 
they take him out for walks in the woods, you know, and they live more in a rural area and uh, they're completely vegan and they're activists and, you know, all of that. So they have that side of the world, but they understand there's this side of the world as well. And I think the, the big world, the big word is balance, right? Balance. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And that's, that's what I try to do in my stories actually in some mm. ways is just try to try to find a way to muddle through you know, right. and, and, and have balance. So I yeah. don't know. I mean, that's it, you know, like Let's the ship what... is out of balance. It's going to sink. The lifeboat <laughs> topsy-turvy, you got out of balance. So, you know, really comes down to it is that if you feel that you're getting a pull too much to one side, you know, we need that equilibrium. We right. really do need that equilibrium. And, and that comes very much from the inner wisdom, not right. the outer. The outer knowledge could be the one that can sink you sometimes because it always says, yes, but why? Yeah, but why? But, you know, when you go into the inner side, then you, you know. I don't right. need to understand why because I feel the why. Right. I understand right. the why. And I think a lot of this invitation that's going on right now is go into your center core be attached to that center core and then you'll actually understand how to use the right. outside in a more balanced fashion right well that's not you know honestly that's not at all different from when you're trying to write fiction mm -hmm. you do the same thing you go inside somewhere yeah. and this this thing appears and your job is to get it out there somewhere so yeah so I want people to go back and listen to our first show as well, where we also talk about the books, but we've just, you know, we just have this wonderful yeah. conversation about many things. So people, all they have to do, self-discovery media and put in your name, Charles Sheldon, and uh, show will come up. Plus uh, both shows will come up. And also all of your books will come up. But how do people get hold of the books, love? Where can they buy them? And how can they get hold of you? Okay, they can get hold of me uh, by with my email address charliesheldon2.com i mean no that's that's i'm sorry yeah charliesheldon2.gmail.com and it's charlie with an ie and if they do get a hold of me by email i will send them a free copy of the first book in the series strongheart which they can put up on their kindle and read wonderful okay so that's that's the freebie a giveaway strong heart to anybody who emails me excellent okay. that's Charlie wonderful Sheldon to at gmail.com and my and, and the books can be you can go to a bookstore and or, the bookstores can order the books if they're not in the bookstore they probably maybe in the pacific northwest there'll be books there but in the rest of the country probably not but they're on order they can be ordered from ingram they can get the books on Amazon, of course. They're on Amazon. There's also a ebook or Kindle book on Amazon. And Strongheart, the first book in my series, is also an audio book mm. on Amazon. Uh, my webpage is charliesheldon2.com. And there you can also get links to buy the books through an independent bookstore and a bunch of other stuff I've written about that they might find fun or interesting. And again, if they, they want a free copy of Strongheart, the first copy in the series, if they've listened to this point and still mm -hmm. this, then uh, just email me at charliesheldon 2com Say you listen. No, charliesheldon 2 at gmail.com. I'm sorry, you're right. charliesheldon 2 <laughs> at gmail.com. And, you know, you're, you're writing from Self-Discovery podcast or from Sarah's podcast. And 
I'll send you a copy of Strongheart. Wonderful. And of course, you're on Facebook, Charlie, uh, Charlie Sheldon, too. So it's very simple. Yeah, it's charliesheldon2.com, charliesheldon2 at gmail.com yeah. and Facebook, Charlie Sheldon, too. Yep. Oh, yep. Absolutely. And I hope I can hear from some people. Yes, we'd love to hear some response. You know, what part of the conversation did you connect to? You know, do you have any questions about the books? Um, do you have any questions about writing? Do you have any philosophies that you want to share, right? Because that's something else that I think that we've forgotten to do. We are reactionary people, but we're not interaction. And I think, you know, invest, interact with each other. You know, you don't understand a situation until you ask the questions and you're open to see things from the other side. And uh, I would like to see more of that going on instead of just a reaction. One more thing, Sarah, uh, that um, the a group called the Online Book Club for Readers, which is um, on the web and has almost 3 million members around mm. the world now. Uh, my book, Totem, will be Book of the Month on... Um, the online book club uh, on February 1st for the month of February. And I'm setting up a special for the totem ebook purchase that uh, it's usually $8.99 for the Kindle version of totem, but I'm going to offer it for $1.99 for a few days starting on February 1st um, through, through Amazon. So um, that's, um, kind of a big launch, second big launch for Totem, an online book club. Wonderful. So that's another, another option. Is it onlinebookclub.com? I think so, yeah. The okay. guy named Scott Hughes runs it. And he, he, when I started working with him, he had 150,000 members. Now he has almost three, 3 million. Wonderful. Wonderful. Excellent. A, a good way of getting things out, yeah, right? Yeah, Definitely. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that's the thing. I'm always saying to people, have a, you know, people have book clubs. It's great to all read a book and then come back and each share your own perspectives of it. But also say have podcast clubs. You listen right, to a podcast, right. come back and have a conversation because each person who listens to these shows uh, is going to get something else out of it. And right. then come back and have a discussion. Right. Wow. Talk to each other. Share your yep, perspectives. Yep. No wrong right. way or right way. It's just your way. Right. Always a delight to have you here, Charlie. Uh, really do enjoy our time here together. Thank you for coming back and sharing with us. Thank you, sir. I enjoyed it and uh, hope I hear from some of your listeners and, and uh, have a great 2022. You too, my love. You too. Remember, folks, the books are really, really engaging. And there's a thread between each one of them. Each one of them stands alone. But when you read all three of the books, you're going to see that wonderful weave. So please go and pick up the books. We're still in winter. Put your feet up by the fireplace and just sit back and read a book and be transported. And then afterwards, food for thought. What did it do for you? Where did it take you? What does it reflect upon you? Because that's the beauty of a really good book. So until next time, folks, bye for now. We hope that you enjoyed the show right here on selfdiscoverymedia.com. Please tune in to our selfdiscoverymedia.com slash shows and you will see all the other genres that we have from you. Every week on Tuesday, we bring you new shows from illuminating people. If you know someone that should be interviewed, please contact us at info at selfdiscoverymedia.com. Now stay tuned for your next show.